Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Dorota Blumchinska is a leader with profound empathy. As the Executive Director of Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba, also known as IRCOM, Dorota and her team have helped thousands of refugees and immigrants, adults and children, navigate the difficult path of integration into Canadian culture. Every child absolutely should have access to, to crayons and crafting material and all of that stuff that builds creativity and builds the mind and imagination. Um, but when you see a child that has come out of a conflict zone, or you see a child that has experienced trauma or lives in a family that is very traumatized and so they have vicarious trauma. And so when you actually see the way in which their spirit um, isn't as exuberant or isn't as animated or isn't as, as courageous or as brave as that of a child that doesn't have that same level of risk aversion because they don't have that same experience of suffering, then you begin to understand that you know what that child they they need the crayons and the crafting material but they also need potentially someone who's going to help talk them through what's happening inside their mind i sat down with dorota back in august to talk about the refugee experience in 2020 the many challenges of covid 19 and how to inspire empathy for those less fortunate Rhoda Blumchinska, Executive Director, Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba, President of the Canadian Council for Refugees, Speaker, Educator, Activist, and Advocate. Welcome to the Because and Effect podcast. Thank you. I love that intro. I mean, I basically just read your Twitter bio, but um, everything that's written there is so accurate and so beautiful because anytime I hear you speak or talk to you, I learn a little bit more. So educators, of course, important. Activists and advocate, obviously, for refugees. But before we get into sort of the refugee experience, I'd like to talk about that because you are an expert. Just tell me about IRCOM. Tell me about the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba. Give me your three-minute fast pitch about what IRCOM is and does. Oh, no, you didn't just do that to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, IRCOM, uh, in a nutshell, is a one-of-a-kind organization in all of Canada. Um, it has three foundational pillars. So one is we provide safe, affordable, transitional, long-term housing for newly arrived refugee families. So they move in quickly after arrival, stay with us for three years. This is their, their kind of grounding home. And then from here, they launch into life in Canada. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is a whole myriad of settlement and integration programming. So anything from English language classes to after-school programs for children and youth, to capacity building, to you know agency and self-efficacy, just a whole um, variety of things that help people gain knowledge and also transfer the knowledge from their own lived experience into life. And the last piece is around community development. So. Um, both economic community development, but I think also social community development and um, understanding how to um, meet neighbors, how to build relationships here, how to participate um, both uh, to sustain yourself, but also to, I think, uh, self-realize your, your dreams. So that's what we aim to do with our families um, in the early years in Canada. Beautiful. So when you say pillars, does that mean they're all equally important or is there one of those aspects that's like, hey, we got to get make sure that is covered first and then we can work on the other stuff? 
Well, you know, I would, I would say that housing first is important. And I think housing first is important to any individual, any human being on the planet. So if you are in a space in which you feel safe, um, you're better able to learn, you're better able to build relationships, you're better able to heal from, from experiences. Um, if the housing is placed in a setting with people who have a shared lived experience with you or are maybe on a journey or a path that's similar to your own, not only do you have neighbors, but sometimes you instantly have friends. Mm. So I think housing at Earcom is foundational. And upon that very strong foundation, we scaffold and build all the other supports. Right. Well, that neighborhood, that community, it's so important. And obviously people are being displaced and coming from often tumultuous and traumatic experiences. So like, is it a part of your focus to really make sure that those lived experiences potentially traumatic are handled, you know, like the mental health aspect of someone coming from a really traumatic experience. How do you ensure that someone who's going through that is also able to integrate into a community when that w would be challenging for, for anyone, especially a refugee? Right. Um, well, when, when families first arrive, uh, we do have a specialized team in-house that, that meets the families, does a welcome, a new tenant orientation. But part of uh, what the team does is do home visits and do a settlement plan with the family. And the mm. settlement plan focuses on some of the things that we're used to talking about in terms of settlement. So getting your kids into the school system, understanding health care, mm. um, you know, developing some pre-employment skills or employment skills and then getting into employment, language learning. So all of that is happening. Uh, but part of the settlement plan is also um, first dreaming mm. and then articulating a very sometimes far and forward vision of where they want to see their life going. So many of our families who are either coming from prolonged displacement or some are coming out of active conflict zones are in a survival mode. So they're in a day-to-day, -day, get through this next day, get through this next day kind of mentality. And part of what we do in conversation and in acknowledgement of that experience and, and making space for those stories to emerge is to take the stories and, and to hold them, but then also to add and then. So mm. this is everything that has happened and what you have lived through and what you have survived through. And then you can imagine this small child growing up and maybe going to university one day. And how will you um, help what's going to happen 15 years from now today, uh, both maybe in terms of putting money away for school, but maybe also creating a culture of, um, you know, wanting an education into the future and also believing that the future is possible, which is something that for many families, um, isn't part of their experience. Yeah, that's incredibly tragic because, you know, we, you like to think that everyone would believe in themselves, believe that they have a shot at, at you know, whatever, the Canadian dream or whatever you want to call it. But like when you're coming from a country that's either war torn or whatever the situation might be, you just don't think that that's an option for you. So, I mean, how much how much of your work is like the psychiatry or psychology of understanding the human condition and like see you know making sure people are just mentally and, and emotionally okay before they can actually like get a job or any do any of that stuff right yeah um well 
it's not clinical in the mm. way that you might think of psychiatry or psychology. Um, it's rather, um, it's emotional integration is, is different than kind of those systems of integration, right? Mm. The housing language employment. Emotional integration is, is more about creating um, connectivity and fostering belonging. And it's about trying to um, facilitate meaningful relationships. It's about looking at a person through an asset lens and saying, here's all the wealth of experience and knowledge and courage and resilience that you bring. And here's how we can build on everything that you already know um, so that you can thrive in this new environment. Um, it's, it's about um, seeing the humanity in one another. Uh, it's also about understanding that the refugee experience is, is a point in time. And for some, it's mm -hmm. a very long point in time, but the word refugee is a legal status in many ways, right? It's an immigration status. It, it means that a certain number of conditions have occurred in a person's life that has torn them away from the community in which maybe they were born or maybe they uh, felt that they belonged. And so now they're seeking to um, reset and, and have a new life. And, and I think for us at IRCOM, um, we do obviously the work of, of that kind of um, settlement around those more pragmatic pieces. Um, but we often use the words love and mm -hmm. friendship, and we often use the words um, kindness and welcoming and belonging. Uh, we work very, very hard to um, create safe spaces for emotional conversations. We um, have specialized groups for, for the women separately, sometimes mm -hmm. for the men. The youth have their own group. Uh, children have their own group. There's, there's a whole variety of ways that we kind of begin those conversations very, very gently. But people's stories emerge when they are ready. They're not something that we draw out of someone because that can be re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. That can be very difficult. Um, but they they come out when there is trust. And so our role is just to build trust and and to see them and to and to really say, you know, I I see you and I hear you and and I welcome you and I embrace you and I love you and I want you to find happiness here because this is your home. It's beautiful work. How long have you been uh, like in your position there? Uh, well, I've been the executive director just over 10 years wow. um, and with Earcom 12 and a half. Crazy. And it's been around since 91. Was I reading correctly or like how? I yes. Don't know the origin. Okay. So like yeah. how, so 10 years, 12 years of being sort of in the ecosystem. How is, how has the approach changed over the last 10 years? What, what's something that you learned that you did not know? I mean, there's probably a thousand things, but what's the biggest thing that you've learned that's changed over the last decade or so when it comes to, um, you know, trying to give people that fresh start and trying to trying to integrate people in in, in the best way possible. Um, to be honest, I think the thing that, um, there are two things that I would say that I've really picked up on. One is that, is the incredible importance of a, um, a social network, a social web. So, um, mm -hmm the you know the the ability to learn a language um is is kind of there right the the ability to get into employment sometimes not the employment you want sometimes it ends up being survival employment but it becomes possible to to have housing it becomes possible but the 
the profound desire, I think, in people to find friendship and kinship, to um, belong to a community, like to, um, I think in general, every single human being desires um, to be wanted um, and to feel important and to feel that they contribute to something and that they, um, that they're embraced for the entirety of their experience and that they don't need to either um, kind of carry the load of what they've lived through, nor, nor the shame of it, nor, nor the, you know, politicization of mm -hmm. it, that they can, that, that what is part of them, the complexity of their human experience um, is valuable and valued. Um, so That's I've, sad. I've seen that, like I've seen people um, accomplish all those other things, but in the absence of human connection, not, not really feel like this is home yet. Yeah. Um, so that emotional integration is, is critical. We all just want to be on the same, we just want to be on a team, you know, that's how I look at it coming from a sports background, playing sports since I was three years old. I just want to be on the team. You just want to be accepted in like you want to be part of a squad and it doesn't change no matter what country you're from, no matter where you're from. Has this, you know, just talking about, um, you know, social integration and, and social isolation, has COVID-19 affected how that's, how your work is being done? Or can you maybe just expand a little bit about the last six months and, and how this crazy world has changed and how it's changed for you professionally and even personally, potentially? Um, well, I think, <laughs> So I'll tell you, I've heard a number of times people say that, you know, COVID is the, the great uniting experience, right? Because we're all living through it. Um, absolutely, we're all living through it, but we are not all in the same condition when it comes to it. And, um, and I don't entirely agree with that statement uh, because um, the sort of the, the divide between communities perhaps that have and communities that do not have or communities with economic certainty and those without economic certainty or food security without, you know, with food insecurity. Um, or communi communities that have to work versus communities that don't have to work or can work from home or communities that have to bus to their job versus someone who can sit at home like I am right now and do my job from my basement, right? Like, yeah, yeah so continue. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no. It, all of that, um, including, uh, for example, digital literacy. Like we, we all went virtual so quickly you know even even here at ERCOM, um it's an essential service because of the housing aspect and because of the what's labeled as a vulnerable population um so we we couldn't send everyone at home so a, a smaller group of us continued to come back on site and be available to tenants and to sort of help in terms of um if there were ever crisis situations um but we you know, everyone kind of moved, okay, how do you move your services onto digital platforms, right? Mm -hmm. Can we do remote delivery? Can we get people onto the, the Zoom calls? Or, you know, how, how do we deliver language classes through that? That conversation looks so different when there isn't reliable Wi-Fi available to families. And if there's Wi-Fi, maybe there is one or two handheld devices that don't have all of those platforms that are needed for meaningful participation. So then you don't have the, the actual technology, the hardware, right? So the Wi-Fi is a barrier, the hardware is a barrier, and then the digital literacy. So, you know, maybe you've got all that in hand, but now you need to navigate it. And 
for many of our families because families enter into earcom through a needs-based matrix so it's not a chronological wait list where someone mm. gets on the wait list and then they get in um, families apply and we assess every single application independently and look at the length of displacement and we might look at some of the barriers to meaningful integration and we're going to look at what additional supports are going to be needed and we we strive to um, identify families that um, will benefit the most from this cocoon mm. um, and this sort of intense support uh, space. But that means that when something like COVID hits and everyone pulls away and the world goes digital um, and we have up to 30% single parent households with three, four, five, six small children, you know, all of a sudden, the devices and, and all of that digital stuff is a barrier. All of a sudden, even safely getting out of your apartment to get food is impossible. Um, all of a sudden, the fact that you don't have a receiving family here, or maybe that social web that I talked about, means that you don't have contact with the world outside of those mm -hmm. four walls. Yeah. Um, so the way the world closed down, I feel like for many of our families, felt like an even and even tighter and darker closing in. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we did, um, honestly, within days is mobilize an interpreter and first language team and started calling into every single household mm. um, and, and just saying, are you okay? What do you need? And then trying to push food through as quickly as possible and, and trying to secure that personal protective equipment and get people safely suited up so they can go up into the tower, up into the units and leave you know, food at the doors um, and see people and, and just be like, we're still here. I know it doesn't feel like we're here. And the, the first language phone calls and that first language connection was so vital because that all that public health information mm -hmm. that you and I were trying to make sense of and navigate and go, okay, okay. So you're talking about, you know, six feet. So that's two meters, hockey stick plus a bit. Um, you know, that's, that's aspect number one, right? And then, you know, whether or not there's masking, whether or not there's sanitization, whether or not, you know, how does the, the virus spread surface to surface, person to person? Like, I feel like the information was evolving on a daily basis. Still is. Like, was the world was kind of going crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think for our families, um, it, that was just amplified. Because if you catch the bits of the language, or if you're waiting for someone who speaks a bit more English than you do, and what did they understand, and how does that then transfer through the community grapevine? What gets to you eventually, more often than not, was not accurate and was terrifying. No and so we were almost working against um, all of the misinformation and making sure that families were just physically safe and and fed, and everybody was okay. <laughs> It kind of got crazy really fast. Well, how are you doing now? Like, obviously, that sounds wild. Have things somewhat settled? Are you still kind of running around like a chicken with your head cut off? Or what's the situation like? Um, the situation is still different every day. Mm. Um, I think we have a lot better information now. So um, I think our families are more equipped with with good information, we've been able to sort of pull together a lot of first language resources and then get them into families. Um, 
you know, as an organization, we now have a lot of personal protective equipment so we can fully gear people up when, when they're having some contact where, you know, we've been able to put in place that plexiglass and all of the screening and all of the distancing and the markers on the floors. And um, so we're, we're moving with the times Um, in terms of the, the digital transformation. That's, been a challenge. We we were able to go to voice over internet. So that means when we cleared out the offices, people could still call in and, and reach someone. So so that was really important. Um, but I mean, COVID, COVID struck us in so many ways and, and struck the community in so many ways um, that we're in a far better place than we were yeah. before. And I think we're ready should a second wave or when a second wave arrives we're going to be more ready, but this is challenging because our work is person to person. Yeah. And this, it's, it's not going to get a whole lot easier than where we are today. Well, I'm ashamed to think that I did. I'm ashamed to say that I didn't even think of the translation aspect of all the medical mumbo jumbo that's coming out that I don't even understand half the time. Right. Like all these virality and all the work, the medical term, I'm not a science guy, if you can tell, but you know, to be able to translate that into multiple different languages for people who are new to the country is mind-boggling. I mean, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Is is there something? Is there a part of the refugee experience that you think doesn't get maybe reported on the six o'clock news that you would like people to know about when it comes to you know just your average family or average person coming and trying to trying to make it? Trying to make it. Um, hmm. You know, I I feel like what gets lost is um, is all the ways in which our lives are actually so incredibly similar. Mm. Um, I think there's such a focus on um, the points of difference, uh, which are important, and I I don't want to kind of sweep them away like that's that you know that that isn't critical to to understand and appreciate. Um, but at the end of the day. Um, you know, what, what I hear from our families, and, and sometimes I have the great joy of, of being able to, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> go in um, and visit and, and have tea and just sit and talk to them. It's the same conversations, you know, the same conversations you and I might be having about, you know, meal planning for the week or what are, how are the kids doing in school and, you know, thinking about um, family we've left back home and, and how are they doing um, much like many people in our own communities think about, you know, they're the older adults in their own kind of family pods, right? And they think mm-hmm. about how are they doing and how do we best support them? So um, I think we'd be surprised. I think a lot of people would be surprised just how um, how extraordinarily ordinary uh, the lives of a lot of our families are. Um, mm-hmm. They do have that that layer of um, trauma and I think uh, PTSD and that, that, that layer is profound. That layer in terms of the impact it has on the human spirit is profound, but the day-to-day life um, in terms of just the impact when someone smiles at someone or, you know, reaches out a hand in friendship or just even acknowledges someone on the sidewalk with, with a bit of a nod um, that that means something to everybody because they feel seen. Um, and that means equally as much to our families. Yeah, I think that gets forgotten pretty frequently that everyone, 
even if whatever political side you're on, whatever country you're from, everyone wants safety, happiness, their kids to be healthy and food. You know, that's pretty much it. As long as you can acquire those things. And then, I don't know, it just seems so weird that we think that other groups don't deserve that sometimes you know like some you know when there's when there's arguments about like where to spend money it's like oh they don't deserve that and, and I, i've never understood it and i don't really get it and it kind of frustrates me is there is there anything that frustrates you about the the discourse that 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 surrounds you know refugees and i mean that's opening up a can of worms obviously but maybe like what's something that you wish the stigma was disappeared from or like what's what's a, one negative aspect that you wish was just abolished Oh God. Okay. Uh, well, so many negative aspects yeah. that I wish, wish would, uh, would go away. Um, I, but I think you touched on, on something really important there. Um, you know, we have different relationships when we have um, closer proximity to one another, mm. right? Like it is, it, I think it's easy to say, let's not invest additional resources into inner city schools because, you know, maybe their families don't work hard or their families have contributed to their their circumstances, right? Like if you hold the world view that the adversity a person faces is the result of their choices or a punishment for their life, um, then it's easy to let yourself think that, oh no, you know, I'm not responsible for them. I don't see why my, my taxes or my resources should be, you know, more directed towards this community versus the community my children attend because of all these reasons right so it it comes down to a worldview but yet if you spend honestly 10 minutes with one of the kids in our after school program and they will run circles around you and they will scream and they will show you what they love to draw um and they're going to you know, talk to you about what they do at school and what they bring in their lunch and what their sister mm -hmm. did and they got a fight with their brother. And, you know, um, the moment there's a relationship, it's almost like the world folds in and it gets just a little bit smaller. And then you start to see the world through, a di I think, through a different view. And then you begin to understand, okay, so every child absolutely should have access to to crayons and crafting material and all of that stuff that builds creativity and builds the mind and imagination um, but when you see a child that has come out of a conflict zone or you see a child that has experienced trauma or lives in a family that is very traumatized and so they have vicarious trauma and mm -hmm. so when you actually see the way in which their spirit um, isn't as exuberant or isn't as animated or isn't as as courageous or as brave as that of a child that doesn't have that same level of risk aversion because they don't have that same experience of suffering mm -hmm. then you begin to understand that you know what that child they they need the crayons and the crafting material but they also need potentially someone who's going to help talk them through mm -hmm. what's happening inside their mind mm -hmm. and someone who's going to say you know this child may not yet have the cognitive ability to really make sense of their experience, but when you place a trusted adult beside them and that adult talks to them and, and helps them kind of say, draw out what's inside your heart or show me a picture of what you see in your mind or explain to me the colors of your feelings right now. Um, that extra help 
brings that child out of that shell. And then those two children feed the same crayons and everything else. Mm -hmm. Then the healing can begin. Yeah, no kidding. You're you're so well-spoken. Have you always been like a a good talker or did, is this fast pitch coming through? Like for people who don't know, the Winnipeg Foundation has a, uh, basically it's like Dragon's Den for nonprofits and Dorota it's like was. Dragon's Den is yeah. yeah so have you always been like I mean you're just so well-spoken and so like inspiring has is this always been a case or have you honed these skills over the last decade of of events like that uh I've definitely honed some of the skills <laughs> um but have I always been a storyteller I think I've always been a storyteller mm. um my life's dream was to be a writer that kind of got squashed by my migrant family who said it was more important to put bread on the table than than pursue your dreams, which is very much the lived experience yeah, of, yeah. of refugee children. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a skill that I feel like I've developed through my own migration journey, hmm. which is to try to figure out how to connect with people um, as quickly and almost as authentically as possible, because I've had to build relationships in several nations along the way right? Um, and try to find what it is that we see in one another that can help us be friends. The commonality. Yeah. The commonality. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I went to Romania about maybe three or four years ago now. That's where my family's from and learned that my great grandfather and his brother were one, two of seven children that came from Romania to Canada. Mm-hmm. And they got to the boat and my great grandfather got to go on the boat and his brother didn't because he had glasses and that was it. So it was like, as soon as I learned that, I was like, I could, that was the one decision that had, or, you know, the, the thing that got me to Canada, got my great, you know, and all these things had to happen for me to have this life. And just thinking about that moment and that's still happening today. Those moments are still happening today where people are denied freedom or denied access to the things that we all take for granted and you know it's a crazy way to think as soon as i learned that i was like hey we every anyone who needs help we're giving them help we're doing whatever it takes so like my struggle is how do we the people who don't understand the refugee experience or don't understand you know it doesn't have to be a refugee it can just be someone who doesn't have what they need to thrive how do we get those people to understand that everyone is de- deserving of that? That's what, that's something I've been struggling with for a long time since I started this podcast and since I've, you know, the last 10 years of my life. Like, how do we get people who don't think others deserve the basics to realize that everyone deserves a chance at happiness? I didn't know you were going to ask me such <laughs> profound existential questions. Thanks for this. No problem. Um, (laughs) Well, okay, I would start with this. I would challenge anyone who thinks that they have the life they have right now solely as a result of their hard work and determination. Because less than 1% of global refugees are ever resettled to a new country for a new beginning. That is not a product of hard work. That is a human lottery. And I have the life I have today because my parents won the human lottery along the way. Because the refugee camp I lived in did not resettle every family that was in it. Actually, very few ever got resettled. 
And because at that moment in history, there was a diaspora community, a Polish diaspora community in Canada advocating to the federal government to recognize the displacement of Polish people because of the martial law and, and the civil war in Poland under communism and, and kind of the revolution that was underway and the need to resettle people for their, for their safety and people who had fought very bravely uh, for democracy and for freedom. Wow. Um, so all those conditions had to be in place in order to facilitate our resettlement. And it was hard work and determination is such a small factor. It's human lottery. And when you recognize that often the circumstances we find ourselves in um, are intergenerational and are complex. And there are a lot of layers to why people are in the moment in life where they're at. And that it's easy to sort of stand aside and pass judgment and say, well, if I was in that life, I would have made a different decision. <laughs> we don't know that. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I don't know that. But what I do know is that every single person is worthy. Every single person is worthy of feeling loved and feeling valued. And and I know the difference it makes when someone sees you mm -hmm. and knows you and wants to know you to your core. And that is the shared human experience. And when you begin to understand that shared human experience, um, then I think people begin to change the way they think about distribution of resources and proximity to power and privilege mm -hmm. and all of the advantages that they have inbuilt into their life through no effort of their own but yeah. simply by virtue of where they might have been born or the family they were born in the human lottery i love the way that's put i i've been not not arguing but let's say healthily debating friends and family about you know the bootstraps argument like oh why can't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work yeah work their way out of that problem and i'm hoping that that mindset is slowly eroding as more education becomes you know more mainstream of like no one does everything by themselves like you've had a teacher a mentor a, a guide a parent a friend a family member someone along the way has definitely helped you like who taught you to talk who taught you to eat you know like uh, you know at the very basics you have those privileges who taught you to speak you know there's some people who don't speak the language they haven't had that privilege that you have and it's i'm hoping that's eroding do you think like over the last 10 15 years have you noticed maybe the general population kind of is now understanding the way the world works a little bit more and you it's less about you uh, educating them and more about like you now you can get the work done or is it still more education Oh, you know, <laughs> the <clears throat> the education is a journey right. for all of us. Um, I think there are different conversations happening now about understanding the role that others have in our lives. Like, I think I think mm. it's more commonplace for people to talk about this was the most influential teacher in my life. Right. Or people will talk about this is the mentor. Um, I often think about the way uh, IRCOM's board of directors took such a long shot um, hiring me as the executive director because I had no ED experience. Um, but someone saw something and, and weighed the risk and potential return and said, let's, let's just jump off this ledge. And the number of times that we've, as individuals in our lives, jumped off of a ledge 
but somebody else was holding open our wings and we were just simply not aware of it. And they already knew we were gonna fly, even as terrified as we were kind of leaping forward. Um, they believed enough in us to say, you know, take, take this journey, take this chance. And, and so I think we're starting to recognize that contribution um, of, of others, family, friends, society, the, um, the world kind of in shaping and developing us. Um, I think it's important to continue to reflect on that and think about, again, the starting point of where people are supported through. Because that idea of pulling up your bootstraps, <laughs> the families that are your calm are the hardest working families I have ever met in my entire life. And what they're working at is feeling whole mm. and healing and self-worth and trying to not carry into their future all of the trauma of their past. And if you think that that's not work, if you don't think that it's work to wake up every single morning with that lived experience and then to set it aside and to place your mind on learning a new language and learning about a new community <laughs> and trying to find work and helping your kids through this um, tug of war of, of culture and identity, you have no idea what work is because that that's far harder than a lot of the work that we do. Beautifully said. Could not agree more. So, I mean, we talk about the, the traumatic aspects of things. Obviously, I'm assuming that you have met some people, talked, seen some things and had some really... I would imagine devastating conversations, experiences and traumatic moments. But on the flip side, do you think like that the the refugee experience in general can show the best in humanity as well and can really shine a light on like the most beautiful aspects of humankind as well? I think so. Um, you know, it's <laughs> if you we grow from pain right? We, um, we, we learn, you know, anytime that you want to build muscle, you actually need to tear the muscle, you need to tear mm. the muscle and feel the pain of tearing that muscle, so that it can kind of weave itself back together and grow stronger. And often the migrant experience is one that has required an enormous amount of um, tearing apart and rebuilding and tearing apart and rebuilding. And what I have learned is that in my humble opinion, I think in many ways, the human spirit is actually unbreakable. Mm. And the experiences that families have trusted with me, this, with, trusted me with, and the stories that they have, they have not just articulate, not stories that they've just said, but stories that they have painted mm. and kind of placed in life and then handed them over <laughs> and put them into my hands and said, you know, carry this for me. Um, have been profound and they've mm -hmm. been traumatic, uh, traumatic for them, traumatic, quite frankly, for me to listen to. Um, but at the end of the day, time and again, and time and again, I have seen them stand up and keep standing up. And, you know, I think specifically about the family that lost their, their daughter last year um, mm -hmm. in the accident in front of Isabel. And I have met with that mom many, many times. Um, I have, you know, sat beside her, I have held her. Um, 
she gets up every day and that um, she gets up every day and, and she smiles and, and she says, I'm going to find a way forward. Um, and I have seen the incredible um, determination and I think the strength of the human spirit in a way that so many don't have the opportunity to see. Right. And so when we think about um, who it is that arrives in Canada as, as refugees or as, or as migrants or as immigrants or temporary foreign workers, um, this is, you know, courage and resilience and um, belief in self-worth and a vision and a dream of the future um, that's being imported en masse. And I think, you know, seeping into all of our communities um, mm. because we can learn from this. We can learn from this that um, we cannot, the spirit can't be broken. The spirit cannot be broken as long as we hold on and we just keep um, talking to one another and keep seeing one another and just keep caring for one another, mm -hmm. that human spirit will thrive. Stay connected. Yes. Very well said. I know that in this position, you're very valuable and very important, but I still think you should leave the door open to writing a book or something because you speak in metaphors and poetry. Like you should, I don't know if you do write or if it's, you know, maybe a therapeutic thing because it's handy, <laughs> but you should please write a book or write, a, just never stop writing, never stop making. Cause I think the world needs to learn about what you've acquired so far. I'm, I'm on it. Next year is okay, our yeah. 30th anniversary. And if I can add an extra 12 hours to my 24 hour day, which I'm trying to figure out. How to do that, <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, we're going to yeah. see what magic we can pull together by the 30th anniversary. But I agree. There are so many beautiful stories and I think there's yeah. a lot to be learned here. Definitely. Well, we should talk about that more once we're done the podcast, because I, I think we can maybe help tell some stories. Help That'd away. Be good. Great. So. <laughs> Dorota, at the end of our time together, we do the Just Because segment, which is the same seven questions that everyone asks, just kind of about the causes that you care about and why. Are you okay to do that with us? Totally. All right. Question one. What is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Um, so I did a lot of soul searching, just to say, with, with some of these questions. Um, I asked you in advance for them because I yeah. thought, oh, okay, I want to be really, really ready. Um, and I'm going to um, give you just a little bit of background. About um, six or seven years ago, I was given um, a brown package that contained uh, 16 letters that my mom, who is deceased now, um, wrote to her best friend in the first seven years of the only seven years she lived in Canada. Oh. Um, and those 16 letters kind of describe some of our acculturation process and everything that she's experiencing and living through. And in particular, um, a year before she she passed away, she writes about being on strike um, and that uh, part of her union, she is um, striking because um, they're talking about reducing wages and removing group health insurance. Um, and I was on those picket lines with her. Wow. How <laughs> and, old are you? Um, I was 15. Awesome. Uh, and it was exhilarating and fun. But I remember all of the conversations in my home. My parents were part of Solidarność, uh, which was the solidarity movement in Poland, you know, workers rights. Um, 
you know, uh, good pay for, for good work. And that's probably not the saying, but I don't know. what. <laughs> um, and, and here my mother was, um, you know, on strike, picketing, um, shouting. And this was the first thing, this was the conversation in my home around valuing how people contribute and making sure that everyone can be healthy and have, you know, dental care or mm-hmm. have mental health care or have vision care, you know, have all of the care that's not included in, in the provincial health program, um, because that's what created a life of dignity. Um, and, and so that's the first one that comes to mind. Amazing. Your mom sounds like a badass. Is that true? She was a badass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all for you, what's the first thing you would do in support of your cause? Basic income, uh, mm. more than basic income. I, I fundamentally believe that there is no reason that in this country um, there, poverty exists. Like I, I don't actually understand how poverty exists in Canada. Um, I mean, I understand it pragmatically. So I understand that we have um, racist policies, racist government. Um, We have not just racist legacy, but a very racist present um, and a status quo that is going unchallenged. Um, And so the the poverty that exists in Canada is by design and it is constructed and it is being upheld. Um, And so if all of those things were gone, um, then I think um, no child should be hungry. No one should ever be cold in the winter. Um, no one should struggle to have a life of dignity. No one should struggle to have access to good mental health supports, to have you know good vision, to have really healthy teeth, um, like like that that health care for for the human body and and the spirit combined with that that worthiness and and that life um, a life of dignity. Um, should should be for everyone beautifully said couldn't agree more like i i I often whenever i get into the discussions like this and there's a counterpoint i say we have enough stuff like there's enough to go around here and it it boggles my mind that like people would say like well they don't need it or they don't deserve it or like whatever the crazy arguments are like look around there's enough to go around here and it boggles me that that can even be argued you know it's a bizarre situation (laughs) Yeah. Question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? I, we, we kind of talked about this earlier, but maybe something different. Or if you've thought about it, let me know what you uh, came up with. Um, no, I think I think it comes down to that human lottery piece, right? Mm-hmm. I think fundamentally it comes down to, to the worldview that people living in poverty or people living in adverse conditions, like people um, that when we talk about those circumstances, we say, you know, that... Um, they are the victims of these systems. Well, we've built the systems and we uphold the systems. Um, the systems are victimizing our communities. Our, the systems are impoverishing our communities. The systems are disenfranchising our communities. The systems are depriving our communities of, of human rights and, and, and lives of dignity. Um, and so, you know, the, the biggest challenge is, is that that sense of entitlement, that, that ego, that, mm. you know, the privilege that I have, it is my earned privilege because I work really, really hard and I don't have to talk about wealth distribution and I don't have to talk about a lack of social justice or inequity, um, you know, because I worked 
for everything that I have. And this is the reward of my hard work. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sorry, it's not. <laughs> it is absolutely not. Um, and in fact, your obligation, your obligation with, with everything that you have amassed and acquired is to contribute to dismantling everything else that is keeping people living in these lives that don't afford them just the very basic of happiness. Very well said. I could not agree more. It's it's expensive to be poor. That's the the weirdest thing about the systems we've set up is like it costs money to be impoverished. Like all the things that you have to do that that other people don't have charges for, they really add up. And it, it once you realize that, you're like, how is this fair? Like it's more expensive for someone who has less money. Like what can we can we address that or like what's what are the options there? It's bizarre. Well, you know, um, my mother used to say um, that poor people can't afford cheap things. <laughs> uh, and basically it came down to the fact that we don't have the resources to replace it two or three times. And, you know, we 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 don't have the choice of, you know, um, just going at things repeatedly because we might only have one shot at it. You know, we might only have this limited amount of resources to purchase one pair of shoes or one bed. And that bed's got to be a comfortable and a good bed so you can get a good night of sleep so you can face the world the next day. Um, You can't just, you can't be part of the consumerism um, kind of climate and and that uh, culture because you don't have the resources to kind of keep coming back at it. You, when you're poor, you've got to get it right the first time, despite everything else that you're, you're facing, because there is no plan B. There is no web below you. Um, you know, I often think about, you know, both my experience and the experience of our families here. I'm going to inherit nothing. I have, I, I have no family in this country from whom to inherit. Um, and I, there is no generational passing of wealth. There is no web below me. If my life gives out, then I bottom out. And so many families living in precarious situations are one life event away from poverty, from being in a shelter, from losing their housing, sometimes from losing their children. And and life is merciless that way, but it yeah. doesn't have to be. Yeah, I'm sure COVID was that exact experience for a lot of people too, as we were talking about before. Uh, question four, what is a time in your life where you, well, I feel like we should change this question because anyways, I'll just ask it. What is a time in your life you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out and you had to switch over to plan B? All the time. That's that's um, the answer. Everyone is saying like every day, every, you know, so continue. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. You know what? I'm going to tell you. Um, I worked for almost five years in banking and I have a business degree. Hmm. And there came a moment in my life where I knew that what I was doing on the outside of me wasn't aligned with what I believed on the inside of me and that I couldn't get these two realities to Um, kind of take the journey together. And what I was contributing to was creating wealth for the wealthy and, you know, providing mortgages to people who have the already strong financial foundations to to be homeowners. And I wasn't able to do anything for many of the community members and especially Polish community members at that point in time 
who were coming to me because they could do um, some of the banking services in first language, but I couldn't do anything. And I repeatedly couldn't do anything. And I, I realized that I was part of this, this machinery that I didn't think was going to change lives for families like my own mm. when we had arrived. Um, and so kind of left all that behind, <laughs> uh, gave up the really good pension plan and the really awesome health plan and Freedom 55 mm -hmm. um, and fell in love with Earcom. And, um, you know, I had to sell my car and downsize and, and make a whole lot of life adjustments and live so fully and so happily um, that I never looked back. But it was the moment in which I aligned um, what I believed to be true of the world with where I was putting my skill and my talent and my time and little bits of my treasure. Cause at the beginning we had to buy our own pens at Earcom. So. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, that's an adjustment let's say, but it's, I think it, that's purpose though. You know, you, yeah. it, it's very rare that people find their purpose and it seems like that's where you've landed. Yeah. yeah. Question five, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Um, so, um, so my mom passed away when I was 16 and, and for the 23 years that followed, um, my grandmother, uh, was my mother in so many ways. And my grandmother had, um, the best one liners you can imagine. Uh, and I don't know how this translates into English and maybe not super well, but I'm going to try. Um, but my grandmother used to say to me, when the world gives you take, and when it takes back, you run, <laughs> um, and I feel like I have um, lived into that in terms of when there are opportunities, I step in. Um, when a door is open, I push my way through it. Even if you if you give a tiny crack, I'm going to bust that open and, and bulldoze straight into there. Because um, when the world gives, you have to take, you have to leap, you have to um, suspend all of your fear and, and just go for it. And then when the world comes to collect, you run like hell. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And now I miss my grandma. That's beautiful. I love it. It makes sense too, because, and I think a lot of times people think when the world gives, you feel bad about it or something, you know, like you, you feel like, oh, I, can't, I don't know if I should take this opportunity, you know, any sort of negative self-talk or whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah. don't feel, don't feel bad. The world is offering you an opportunity. Take it. Absolutely. I and I, that. and I, I believe very much in the universe, right? I believe in, in finding your purpose. I believe in finding your calling. I believe in answering sort of the, the, that internal question that I think drives all of us. Um, so if you listen kind of with intention, if you listen mindfully, um, everything falls into place and all you're being asked to do is to have the courage to walk into it, right? So when, when the world gives, you've got to take that opportunity because you don't know if and when it's ever gonna come around again. Mm -hmm. um, but, but when the world is, is kind of trying to pull away from you, I think part of it is, is to hold on to who it is that you are. Yeah. Um, and to, to equally have the strength to remain steadfast in, in your values, in your purpose, um, in the calling on your life so that you, you stay there or yeah. run away. <laughs> I, no, I like that. It's kind of, it's, it kind of reminds me of like, I don't know if it's a poker term, but cut and run, like cut your losses or cut like take your winnings and just 
that's what that means. It doesn't mean run away like no. in fear. It means like take what you've. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in the future. <laughs> Question six: What advice would you give your ten year old self if you could talk to her right now? Oh, my ten year old self. Okay, so <laughs> my ten year old self um, was a tomboy um, that was really struggling to learn English. Um, that um, I think um, still had kind of a bit of a craziness. I'm one of five children. I'm the middle child. Okay. And I think all middle children will understand the, uh, the craziness of being the middle child. Because, um, you, know, you know, you don't have any real advantage. No. You, if, if you're going to make a path, you're going to you're going to make it for yourself because everybody's busy, you know, being older than you or, or <laughs> younger and better taken care of. Um, so I think what I would say to the 10 year old me is um, you are strong, you are smart, you are capable and you are kind and you're going to change the world. And so just, just give her. And uh, yeah. Beautiful. That could be, Oh my God. Every 10 year old should wake up with someone in their face saying, Hey, you're smart. You're kind. You're going to change the world. Now get out there and you know, and and I say this to be honest. I say this to my kids every single day when they do wake up. It's it's our routine when they get dropped off at school. They've got to memorize it. And they've got to repeat it back to me. I am smart. I am strong. I am capable. I am kind. I'm going to change the world. And then I'm like, go to school now. Affirmations. <laughs> that it works. Affirmations. They do I love work. It. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful to get to spend this time with you. Um, Thanks, Nolan. Oh, no problem. What the the last question is usually the hardest one, but uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Okay. Um, it's. I want to give my kids a different world. Um, I think. I think what. Um, I don't know, in many ways, I think what I'd like to be remembered for is um, my laughter, because mm. I laugh a lot. And I think laughter is the best medicine. And, um, and I think it, it keeps me strong, even in the face of everything. Um, but I think um, it's that I, I had a dream. And I, I leapt off that ledge, right? And um, and I, I decided to not be, um, I've, I've decided not to be held back by the hardships of my past and my life. Um, and all the things that I feel like I try to share with families now, I believe them to be true of myself. I'm, mm -hmm. I am capable and I am kind mm -hmm. and I am strong and I am smart. And I really, really hope that in my lifetime, I can help even in the smallest way to change the world. 100%. Well, you, you've changed my world. I can say unequivocally that you have. I love, I love that concept of leave every person, place, or room that you're in better off than when you came into it. And it seems like that's how you kind of live your life as well, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Always, always trying. Certainly sure. always always trying. <laughs> well, Dorota, thank you for this. I mean, we, we've almost done a full hour here. This is one of the longer ones, but I'm very glad that we got to talk. 
to you and learn a little bit more about ERCOM uh, and just anything else. Is there anything you'd like the average person to know, like what's coming up with ERCOM or where can people find more information when it comes to your stuff and everything that you're doing? Uh, well, exciting things are happening. So next year is our 30th anniversary uh, and we are looking for our alumni. So oh. Winnipeg, if you know a family that lived at 95 Ellen Street 30 years ago or 29 or 28 or 27 years ago, um, I want their stories and I would love to see the early year pictures I would love to hear where they're at right now. That book that, you know, you and I, Nolan, are going to write together. Sounds good. Um, it's got to be that 30 years of stories, you wow. know, stories of arrival and, and stories of living. Um, so we're looking for the alumni. Um, and we're also looking for all of Winnipeg to, to join us in that celebration. Um, because 30 years, I think, as, as a nonprofit, it's it's a lot of hustle mm -hmm. and it's a lot of work and it's it's a critical accomplishment. Um, and what Earcom is today is is an amazing center of excellence in terms of um, you know refugee settlement and integration. We have figured out magic here. We we've made magic here. Uh, we want others to learn about it. We want others to um, do it with us. Um, and uh, so be part of the Earcom community and help us find our alumni. <laughs> so the 30th. So if anyone has been connected with Earcom, go to ircom.ca. You'll be able to learn more and contact, you know, Dorota and her team and everyone there. Dorota, thank you so much. Dorota Blumchinska, the executive director of Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba. Thank you for the podcast. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for the inspiration. I'm going to attack this weekend like I never have before and get Good. out there and change the world. So thank, thank you, you so, so, so change much. Change the world. Thank you, Nolan. Thank you again to Dorota Blumchinska for the wonderful conversation. I truly walked away inspired. I continue to be inspired. Uh, hearing her words every time uh, is just a great, great boost to the old uh, energy because uh, we need it right now. Times are pretty crazy and uh, Dorota is the type of leader that this world needs for sure. Uh, this is one of the longest podcasts. So I'm just going to wrap things up really quickly. Um, as always, the music on the show produced and composed by P Trenton Burton. So thank you to him. Uh, you can go to trentonburton.com to hear more of his music. And the podcast is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by searching at WPGFDN on all social media accounts or by going to wpgfdn.org and you'll learn about everything that the foundation has planned uh, upcoming and anything in the works right now. My name is Nolan Bicknell. You can find me on social media at Nolan Bicknell. And remember, let your love, care, and kindness speak louder than your words. Bye-bye.